I'm your host, William Tapley, also known as the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse. Stop, 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 stop. You cannot make it look like William Tapley is supporting our program. Sorry, folks. Chris Roseborough here, just to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and financial contributions in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. And no, William Tapley is not our spokesperson. Uh, if you don't already support us financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. And when you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute. $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Tuesday, June 28th, 2011. I'm coming out of my post-travel fog. I'm starting to think straight again. Yeah, I was thinking in curves before. Sometimes if you overanalyze our uh, our slang phrases, uh, you end up in absurdity. Anyway, thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment. The goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Uh, Sadly, there is no shortage of crazy things being said out there. Uh, All of it's needless because we actually have a Bible. It's not that hard to understand the Bible. Read it in context. It it really makes the big difference. Uh, And, uh, oh, man. And so... We we do the politically incorrect thing. And the idea here is this, is that if you don't hear otherwise, uh, people may actually confuse Christianity with a lot of the weird ideas that are being kicked about nowadays. For instance, um, you know, if you don't say anything about Joel Osteen, then there's a lot of people who are uh, tempted to think that, well, Joel Osteen represents biblical Christianity, but his uh, sermons could be anything but biblical. And uh, if you don't, uh, you know, if you don't take uh, Rob Bell to task, then people are going to think that Christianity teaches that there is no eternal punishment or that God has revealed in his Bible that eternal punishment is really not true. Uh, Unfortunately, we've got to uh, contradict uh, Rob Bell, and we do so with God's word. The basic premise is this, is that, listen, I've never met God, and chances are you haven't met him either. I've never ascended into heaven. I have not had a vision of heaven. Um, I have, I've never had a Starbucks with an angel, uh, anything of the sort. So when it comes to God, I, well, unless God were to help me out, I know nothing, absolutely, positively nothing. I mean, maybe I can use my deductive logic skills and start to deduce some things about God from nature. But then it gets really, it gets really tough there. 
Uh, the reason being is this, is that uh, I can take a look at the magnificence of the creation, you know, the, the beauty of a sunset or, uh, you know, just the sublimity of, uh, of, a, of a mountain waterfall or something like that. And I can say, okay, God is creative and he's powerful. I can look at the expanse of the universe and go, man, he it, it's uh, unbelievable what God is capable of doing. But then we got these things like tsunamis, tornadoes, hurricanes, earthquakes, things like that that uh, end up like wiping out huge segments of the population of the planet like in one fell swoop. And uh, and so uh, I would then have to deduce, okay, um, whoever God is, he doesn't like us very much or there's something seriously wrong because this is not a safe place to be. And, uh, well, thankfully, I, I've moved from Southern California, home of earthquakes, and, you know, right, I lived on the right on the coast, so I was, you know, I could have potentially been swept up in a tsunami while out bodyboarding. But, uh, you know, so now I live in the middle of the United States, in the middle of the Midwest, and um, and so not, not as great a chance of uh, tsunamis hitting me. But we've well, got tornadoes out here, and, you know, it's like eh, anywhere you go on the planet, there's always the potential for bad things happening to you. So if I were to use my deductive logic skills and basically try to figure out what God is like from creation, I would come up with the idea he's powerful, he's sovereign, he's creative, and um, and he's mad, you know, things like that. But um, not much to go on there, just not much to go on. And so God hasn't left us with just deductive reason and logic. Instead, he's revealed himself in history. And this this self-revelation of God is recorded for us in a book. Now, the book is the Bible. It's a library of, of, uh, of revelations of God that are actually inspired by God, the Holy Spirit himself. And they give us a true and accurate picture of who God is, um, what his nature is, uh, what his attributes are, uh, where we came from. Uh, what's gone wrong, and what God has done in history to uh, to resolve that problem. And ultimately, it reveals to us also a glimpse of what's coming in the future. So you can you can sum it up in in like the Nicene Creed, and uh, which is a fantastic summary of the Christian faith. And it, it you know, in fact, let me pull this out on my out of my hymnal here, and I'll, and I'll read it to you. And tell me if this is not just a fantastic summary of what God's Word reveals about the basic overarching um, uh, you know, themes and doctrines of, of Christianity. It's, it's, it's amazing uh, what this thing says. I believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, the Maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of His Father before all worlds, God of God. Light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven, was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, was made man, was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and he was buried. Third day he rose again according to the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and he sits at the right hand of the Father and he will come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom will have no end. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and is glorified, who spoke by the prophets. I believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. 
Now, as, as silly as it might sound, practically every major heresy or false teaching in the church uh, in the past as well as in the present runs afoul of uh, that summary of our faith found in the Nicene Creed, which which really has its roots very, very, very early in, in, uh, in uh, Christian history. Uh, if you were to read the uh, writings of the ancient church fathers, uh, Irenaeus, uh, for instance, uh, you know, Tertullian, uh, Ignatius, uh, Polycarp, guys like this, um, over and again you find in the writings of the patristics, uh, the, the, or the, uh, the church fathers, um, that um, they mention this thing repeatedly called the rule of faith. And uh, when when they mention the rule of faith, they immediately begin in a litany that sounds exactly like or very, very similar to a, a thumbnail sketch creedal outline of what Christianity believes, teaches, and confesses. And it sounds mysteriously like the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed. Well, there's a reason for this. And uh, the, the reason for it is this, is that the Apostles... You know, the, the, you know the, those who were trained by Jesus, those who were eyewitnesses to the resurrection, they're the ones who were inspired by the Holy Spirit to pen uh, the, uh, the New Testament documents. And uh, what we find out is, is that the early church, you know, they had a summary of the Christian faith in these doctrines. You can almost think of it as like an apostolic meta-narrative, a way to, uh, to rightly understand and interpret the Scriptures. It's, it, it's kind of like the key that unlocks the interpretation of Scripture. And, and, it's, and when heretics rose up in the past, they were put down by men like uh, Irenaeus as well as Augustine by them going back to the biblical uh, 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 the biblical basis for the doctrines that are summarized in the rule of faith or in these uh, in these creeds and so uh, these are a powerful weapon these are a powerful defensive tool given to us that we can use against heresies and over and over and over again uh, you'll find that uh, the heresies that we cover here at fighting for the faith and we rebuke uh, using God's word um, that at what at some point uh, they fall they run afoul of one of the major uh, statements in either the Nicene Creed or the Apostles Creed or the Athanasian Creed. So, and just something to keep in mind. And so these creeds are act, they are not they are not detriments to the to the faith. They are actually powerful weapons in defending the faith. Uh, if you know your creeds really well, then you also know the basic synopsis of the Christian faith and what Christian theology and doctrine teaches. And uh, when you hear somebody teach something contrary to it, you immediately go, okay, something's wrong. And then you go back to, you go back to the scriptures then uh, and find out how to compare, you know, and basically find out what the person is teaching, how it's in contradiction to what God's word says. And you're well on your way to uh, saving yourself and your family from being duped, and uh, and all of this matters because Satan is the great deceiver. He twists God's word. He tells lies about uh, God and Christ. Uh, he he teaches false doctrines, and he comes to us in Jesus' name. He comes to us as an angel of light. He comes to us as a wolf, dressed in sheep's clothing, so that we cannot detect or uh, well, easily detect uh, the fangs and the teeth and the things like that. That uh, the fangs and the teeth. Uh, belie the fact that he does not mean us well. He means us harm. So uh, we, do, uh, we do some wolf detection work here at Fighting for the Faith. And to take people to task and teachers to task when they contradict God's word, both uh, in spoken word as well, as well as methodologically. So, 
and it's politically incorrect. If you're a new listener, um, I strongly recommend uh, you're going to probably need to listen to for you know about thirty to forty five days of uh, of episodes of Fighting for the Faith to really kind of get the full range of what it is that we do here and get a better idea of what's going on. And the, the other thing is is that we try to have a little bit of fun along the way, and uh, and we don't have a problem with using humor as a means of basically showing the absurdity of some of the things that we uh, cover here at Fighting for the Faith. All right, let's talk about what we're going to talk about on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. Um, we're going to start off with a Cindy Jacobs update. Now, Cindy Jacobs, I've played a little bit of her in the past, and uh, one of the listeners, uh, one of my listeners on my Facebook wall left me a link to a video of her that I just couldn't pass up. And, in fact, I was so inspired by uh, what she said there that I've actually come up with a new uh, a new intro segment music that we're going to be playing uh, when we do New Apostolic Reformation updates, uh, NAR. The, if you're familiar with the New Apostolic Reformation, these are dominionists who basically believe that uh, Christ can't come back until the church conquers the world. and uh, And so... Uh, they're they're setting out to take dominion over all of the earth, and Cindy Jacobs is caught up in all of that kind of stuff. So we're, we've got a Cindy Jacobs update. I've got a uh, an article uh, from an Episcopal priest entitled "Jesus Changed: Why Can't We?" Uh, this is a great case study on uh, the biblical uh, uh, twisting technique known as eisegesis. We'll be taking a look at that. Um, I've got um, I, I, the Albert Muller piece I didn't get to yesterday. The Empire State's Moral Revolution. It, it's a story, well, it's a, it's a great op-ed piece that uh, Albert Moeller has written there, where he chimes in regarding New York State's uh, passing of legislation, basically making it possible for gay marriage. So we'll take a look at that. I've got a story from um, Christianity Today from their website, it's a website entitled Contemporary Music, the Cultural Medium, and the Christian Message. Fascinating article, fascinating article, worth passing along. And uh, and then in our sermon review time in hour number two, we've got a Vince, Vince Antonucci sermon. From, uh, Vince is the uh, uh, the head vision caster at uh, The Verve in Las Vegas. And the name of his sermon is A Life Worth Watching. A Life Worth Watching. And the reason I'm going to be playing this sermon is because it uh, it really represents well uh, one of the false gospels of the seeker-driven movement. And uh, it talked about a false gospel, a false problem, a false solution, and uh, false reading of Scripture. It's it's absolutely fascinating. Uh, so uh, you, you don't want to miss anything on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. And uh, I strongly recommend that you, uh, if you, if you're really capable of doing it, Sit down, enjoy yourself, kick up your feet, and relax while listening to Fighting for the Faith. And uh, if you want to enjoy an adult beverage, we don't have a problem with that. You feel free to enjoy an adult beverage. Keep in mind the biblical prohibition is against drunkenness, not against drinking itself. If that were the case, then Jesus sinned because, well, he drank. Um, And, uh, of course, if you'd like to truly enhance your listener experience, you do so by wearing fuzzy bunny slippers. kind of sounds odd, but it's true. Believe me, I know this from personal experience. It does enhance uh, your your listener experience, but keep in mind you need to have uh, weather that's not too hot uh, while wearing the fuzzy bunny slippers. Otherwise, your feet will sweat while wearing them, and then that'll detract from uh, you know <clears throat> your listener experience. So anyway, and uh, I think it's important that uh, we play a warning here. Uh, you should understand that there are certain um, activities that um, well, there's certain dangers to listening and fighting for the faith. Here, listen in. 
Warning, fighting for the faith can be dangerous to your health. Listening with caution is strongly urged while doing any of the following activities. Operating heavy, deadly equipment, playing Farmville, or any time-wasting, brain-numbing activity. For sudden awakening at the sound of a particularly stupid isogetical statement could cause neck strain. Drinking liquids, drinking hot liquids, having liquids too nearby, not having any liquids nearby. The following medical conditions have been known to occur while listening to Fighting for the Faith. Cranial keyboard embedment syndrome, sinu-nasal liquid spewment disorder, steering wheel pounding clenched fist strain, continual gaping dry mouth atosis, and frustrative disbelief brain explosion. Please take proper precautions. Drinking straws, padding, and duct tape are recommended. What do you want to do tonight? The same thing we do every night, Pinky. Try to take over the world. The Pinky and the Brain is Pinky and the Brain. One is a genius, the other's insane. The laboratory mice, the genes have been sliced. The Pinky, the Pinky and the Brain, 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 Brain. That's right. That's our brand new update music for our new Apostolic Reformation Dominionist. Uh, updates that uh, we'll be doing from time to time here at Fighting for the Faith. And speaking of new apostolic reformation and dominionists, <laughs> Cindy Jacobs uh, comes to mind. Um, uh, here, listen to this um, <clears throat> uh, audio from a video entitled uh, Reformation Archive Reformation Prayer Network. Uh, yeah, here, listen in. Jacobs. I'm very excited to be sharing with you a vision that the Lord gave me when I was actually preparing and praying for the nations of the earth. Oh, how convenient. I mean, wow. I mean, you're such a holy person, Cindy. I mean, forgive me for sounding completely skeptical and actually not believing at all that God, the Holy Spirit, really actually did speak to you. God began to speak to me that in 2008, there would be a new prayer movement that would come called the Reformation Prayer Network. Now, why would I say this? Uh, because, um, well, uh, you're a heretic? Because you, some of you that know my story, how I wrote Possessing the Gates. And uh, not- oh, yeah, it's all about you. <laughs> yeah, have you ever noticed that the when we listen to these folks who... Um, claim to be getting all these visions and revelations directly from God. It's like, you know, it's like they've, they are able to somehow miraculously plug their faith into a local light, a light socket and, you know, experience the direct electrical flow of the Holy Spirit and come back with all these bizarre stories and things like that. But over and again, they, they really don't tell us about Jesus. No, they're not proclaiming a repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name and really uh, telling all about Jesus. No, they're telling about telling stories about themselves. Okay, Cindy, please tell us some more. I can hardly wait to hear more about you. 
1991, and God spoke to me from Genesis 22:17. Your seed will possess the gates of the enemy. And that time I didn't have the understanding that I... Uh, hang on a second here. I got to back the uh, <clears throat> the audio up so that I could get this, um, uh, the address for this particular verse that she's taking out of context. Apparently God spoke to her from Genesis chapter 20 something. In 1991. And God spoke to me from Genesis 22, 17. You're seeing... Genesis 22, 17. Let's take a look. I mean, God apparently spoke to her. From Genesis twenty two seventeen, kind of odd though, you know, because uh, yeah, when we uh, got to keep in mind the verse numbers are really not inspired by the Holy Spirit. Just that's an actual fact. But uh, let's see here, Genesis twenty two. Um, now remember our three uh, rules for sound biblical interpretation and hermeneutics. They are context, context, and context. I, I want to know who is being discussed here. And anyway. <clears throat> All right, um, uh, Abraham. Okay, uh, this. Okay, in Genesis 22, by the way, we have the fantastic and amazing story of um, uh, Abraham or Abram uh, being called by God to sacrifice his only son Isaac. And uh, and uh, they, yeah, it's. It, in fact, we're going to get into the story a little bit later during our sermon review. But uh, let's take a look at Genesis chapter 22, verse 15. We'll start at verse 15. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Now, I want to point something out here. Um, uh, first of all, I mean, there's a promise here that uh, that God's going to multiply uh, Abraham's descendants and they will be as numerous as the stars of heaven. Second is is a messianic prophecy. Your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. This is referring specifically to Jesus, um, and, uh, and and we know this further because in uh, twenty two eighteen, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. This is specifically referring to Jesus, no doubt about it. So apparently, Cindy Jacobs has God spoke to her and, and gave her a you know gave her a, a, a divine revelation out of Genesis twenty two. And and a prophecy regarding Jesus now got manipulated to being something about Cindy Jacobs. Hmm. Somehow I don't think that Genesis 22 is referring to anything that has to do with Cindy Jacobs uh, whatsoever. But let me back this up so you can hear it again because she's taking a messianic prophecy and while applying it to herself. Here. Some of you that know my story, how I wrote Possessing the Gates in 1991, and God spoke to me from Genesis 22:17. your seed will possess the gates of the enemy. Uh, that's about Jesus, not you. And that time I didn't have the understanding that I do today on what those gates in society are. Uh, there's no gates. In, have you been to the uh, William Tapley School of Biblical Hermeneutics? I, I just question, you know, uh, I've been asking a lot of people that lately. But as I was in a time of prayer, the Lord began to say to me, I want you to possess the gates again. Oh, wow. Wasn't it hard the first time? Now you got to do it all over again. Oh, it sounds... 
Sounds terribly difficult. And this is a very strange thing. You know, we had been praying around the world and, and working with prayer networks in different nations. No, I agree with you. It really is a strange thing because Genesis 22 isn't about you at all. But the Lord had not had us do a lot of work here in the United States. So to my surprise, God said, it's time to possess the gates in 08. Yeah, mm-hmm. Weird, isn't it kind of self-delusional, self-magnifying? A passage that's about Jesus, it's a prophecy about Jesus. She's now turned it into something about her and is blaming it on God. Weird. And so as I interceded for this, I talked to my good friend Chuck Pierce, who at that time was doing a U.S. prayer network, and he said that God had spoken to him the same night that God spoke to me to pick up the prayer network. God, oh, it's a sign. I told him to lay it down. You know, so this was just such confirmation for both of us that we were obeying the Lord, that we were doing what he called us to do. And as I yeah no actually you're not doing what God has called you to do um really the Christian message and uh, you know what the, what Christians are supposed to be doing is proclaiming the good news of Christ and Him crucified for our sins and calling people in all nations to repentance and the forgiveness of their sins in Jesus' name and even Jesus Himself said that when He sent the when He was going to send the Holy Spirit that the Holy Spirit would convict the world of sin and unbelief. Um, your Holy Spirit has verses about Jesus being manipulated into verses about you, and they're not. Uh, your Holy Spirit isn't focusing on Jesus Christ and the Christian message of Christ and Him crucified for our sins, but is focusing in on some weird thing. You know, I... um. <clears throat> Call me skeptical, but um, I really seriously doubt that God, the third person of the Holy Trinity, um, is actually speaking to you. I, I would suspect that actually the revelations you claim that you're getting from God are really actually of a demonic source. Sought the Lord, what does it mean to possess the gates? He spoke to me. I want you to build a Reformation prayer network that is global in scope, but I want you to start building in the United States and expand it to Canada, which we have, and now we're expanding it around the world. He said, literally, I want to see a prayer-saturated nation. Every single part of society, every Age group, generational prayers from the young to the old. Sounds so pious, doesn't it? And it's a complete distraction away from what we're called to do, proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. God coming and changing a nation. You know, in order to have a Reformation prayer network, it's interesting to know what needs to be reformed. And let me say, yeah, please tell us. say this to you. The Holy Spirit has been speaking to many, many leaders today, something we call the seven mountains or seven spheres of influence. Yeah, here we go. The seven spheres of influence. This is a this is a dominionist uh, new apostolic reformation thing. And uh, by the way, the seven spe spheres of influence this is an allegorical interpretation of the seven hills of Rome or, you know, the, it's just... <sighs> Yeah, from the William Tapley School of Biblical Hermeneutics. These spheres of influence are ones that actually change our society. Now, now, why is it important to change our society? The answer, 
Keep in mind, these folks really believe that Jesus can't come back until the church takes dominion over the whole world. And so we're developing a prayer model around seven mountains of society. These mountains are family, religion. The religion mountain would be church, world religions. Another is a governmental mountain. Another business, another media, communications, arts, entertainment. And the last one is education. Oh, wow. Yeah, wow. Yeah, Nice flow chart there. Um, yeah, again, uh, where is this taught in the Bible? Um, where is any of this taught in the Bible? Oh, yeah, that's not. That's right. Cindy Jacobs gets direct revelation from God himself, uh, you know, which makes you wonder. I mean, shouldn't we be, you know, shouldn't we have like blank pages at the back of our Bible where we write down quick, God, the Holy Spirit spoke to Cindy Jacobs, quick, write it down so that we can add it to our Bibles. We know that God wants to release his kingdom into each of these sectors of society. Really, where in the Bible does it say that God wants to release his kingdom into these seven sectors of society? But there are strongholds, strongholds that are affecting each of these seven mountains of influence. Uh, okay, so the strongholds are like defensive linebackers. Got it. I'm using a football metaphor here. You might say, well, Cindy, how did you come up with these seven mountains? Uh, <laughs> yeah, please share. Well, we, we met with a group of leaders. We prayed. We kind of said, well, what shall we do to put prayer into a place and a way that we can think systematically how to change a nation. Yeah, how to change a nation. Got to change the world. Got to take dominion over all the earth so that Jesus can come back. And Lauren Cunningham of Youth with a Mission and Dr. Bill Bright, the former Dr. Bill Bright, each had sought the Lord as they sought the Lord on how to change societies. Independently, God had spoken to them about these seven spears, our seven mountains. Oh boy. Yeah, direct revelation again. Crazy stuff. When you hear people talking like this, uh, in your church circles, you need to rebuke them sharply. And if uh, in their if they're in positions of leadership and you can't get them out, you might want to just leave, uh, like flee, for, you know, like you know, <laughs> flee, like get out of there, like your life depended on it. Mountains of influence, and these are the ones we are presented. The God has been sending this message around the world through different teaching models, and so we feel that this is a viable one, although not perhaps perfect, but one that we can be. So you you feel that this is a viable model, but not a perfect one. Hmm. You, you 
Yeah, um, Cindy, I don't know how to break this to you, but uh, feelings are really like a dodgy thing to uh, <clears throat> claim that you've been given a mandate from God that involves seven mountains or anything of the sort. Uh, you know, I you know, that's really subjective and uh, really dicey. Uh, you don't want to base whether or not you believe something to be true or not based upon your feelings. Um, no, um, instead, we need something objective, something outside of us. You know, something like, you know, the Bible. You, you understand what I'm saying here? Um, yeah, your uh, this whole plan is based on feelings? Sounds like you're being misled by your feelings begin to develop prayer structures over. And let's face it, we're not going to change the earth if we don't change the heavens. Yeah, there it is. And uh, we're not going to change the earth if we don't Here comes the dominionist stuff. We're going to have to legislate in the heavens. Yeah, you go right ahead and you, you go ahead and pass laws in the heavens. You go right ahead, see if God will actually sign them into law. To bring reformation, to bring change. Because if we change the laws in the earth and we don't break the strongholds in the heavens, it'll just deteriorate again. We've seen that. This is <laughs> this is a complete gobbledygook. You're not even making sense, woman. Where does the Bible say any of this? Happen in society. So we want to see these seven spheres of influence be targeted. And every one of your states, every one of your nations, we want to see prayer leaders that will raise up yeah. and they're going to be specially focused on each of these areas. Right. Then we have state coordinators. We're networking with long-standing prayer leaders. Maybe you yeah. want to... Yeah, but are you actually doing what Jesus told us to do? Uh, go and proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name to all nations. That would include 21st century America, Canada, Australia, you know, wherever you want to go. I join with this. Maybe you say, I already have a prayer network, but I want to come alongside of you. You say, well, do we lose our identity? Absolutely not. There's times when God will speak to us and there will be a prophetic word that comes out that we all agree on. And on one day, we're going to say we're going to fast and pray. This is important. Those SOS, strategic one voice. Voice, focus, intercession, working within decentralized leadership groups that are centralized under a common vision to reform the nation and to change the nation. Yeah, uh, united under a common vision. That would be a false vision. That's not what God has revealed in his word that the church is to be about. So there you go. That was our, our first official uh, New Apostolic Reformation Dominionist update, you know. Chief, babe, what do you want to do tonight? The same thing we do every night, Pinky. Try to take over the world. The Pinky and the Brain. That's right, those Dominionists, they're trying to take over the world. We're up on our first break. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there. Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. 
Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. It's... Monty Python's Flying Circus Church. Flying Circus Church would like to again apologize. Normally, we try to do parody here at Marty Python's Flying Circus Church. Unfortunately, the church continues to just parody itself. Case in point, Rabbi Michael Zeitler's anointed shofar CD. This is a real commercial. When Rabbi Michael Zeitler blows the shofar, miracles take place. He wants to see God break every stronghold of the enemy in your life, healing you emotionally, physically, even in your relationships, bringing salvation to your entire household. Call now and receive both Rabbi Michael Zeitler's anointed audio CD, Sound of the Shofar, plus his brand new prophetic book, Why Israel is Supernatural, for a donation of $25. Shipping and handling is included. Ask for offer number 9081. Listen to this anointed audio CD. Allow God's glory to fill the room as Rabbi Rabbi Zeitler shares from the scriptures and then blows the shofar over every issue you are facing, including mental and emotional disorders, confusion, fear, stress, grief, nightmares, insomnia, pain, sickness and disease, addictions, eating disorders, weight loss, injustices, persecution, finances, marriages, rebellious children, freedom from the occult and demonic oppression, and so much more. Through Rabbi Zeitler's brand new prophetic book, Why Israel is Supernatural, you will learn how you and your family can obtain supernatural protection in the midst of the end time judgments about to be unleashed on planet earth don't miss out on getting both rabbi michael zeitler's anointed audio cd sound of the shofar plus his brand new prophetic book why israel is supernatural for a donation of 25 dollars, shipping and handling is included ask for offer number 9081 call or write today Chris Roseboro here to talk about this month's perk for those of you who are members of the Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew. Have you ever been to Walt Disney World or Disneyland and taken a VIP tour of one of those parks? Well, if so, then you know just how valuable those tours can be in pointing you to things that you had never even noticed before. Well, this month's resource, Dr. Paul Kretzman's popular commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, is like a VIP walkthrough tour of the Gospel of Matthew itself. It's fascinating, in-depth, written on a lay level, and it'll help you to achieve a much deeper appreciation and understanding of this vital, vital biblical book. Now, if you would like to get a copy of this, this is only available for our crew members. So the way you join our crew is visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. Click on the one that says, Join Our Crew. You're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And once you fill that out, we will send you an email giving you instructions on how to download this wonderful book. So head on over to fightingforthefaith.com, join our crew today, and thank you for your support. Right, we're back. One eight hundred nine 
warning. Those people who are claiming that God the Holy Spirit is speaking directly to them, um, if they're not really focusing you on Christ and Him crucified for your sins, they're not really hearing from God. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and financial contributions in order to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount, that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And thank you for your support, especially during the lean, uh, financially lean summer months. We our, our bills don't go away during the summer. <laughs> Somehow, every summer our, our giving goes down. So anyway, visit our website, support us today. We truly do appreciate it. Okay, moving along. This next segment uh, requires me to uh, play, um, well, the intro music from uh, you know the first public performance of the Emergent Philharmonic Orchestra. It 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 goes really well with postmodern liberalism, and uh, well, since we're going to be reading something uh, that's from a postmodern liberal, I think it's important that we give the appropriate fanfare. Here we go. This is the audio from the first public performance of the uh, uh, the uh, Emergent. Postmodern Philharmonic Orchestra. Here we go. Wouldn't want to be constrained by notes now, would we? Just interpret the music any old way you want to. are bleeding yeah that's how postmoderns play music just want you know they don't want to be constrained by you know such things as limiting definitions of notes and stuff like that anyway from the episcopal news service uh jesus changed why can't we uh, written by um episcopal priest uh dan webster now um I'm going to be highlighting a uh, a biblical twisting technique uh, used by many Bible twisters, and the, the, this is a technique known as eisegesis. Okay, now it, there's the difference between exegesis and eisegesis. Uh, by the way, this come from uh, ex and ice come from the Greek words ek and ice. Uh, ice means into, and ek means out of. Okay, so the idea here is is that uh, you, you don't want to engage in eisegesis because that's reading into the biblical text things that are actually not there. Exegesis is properly reading out what the text says and what God the Holy Spirit re- uh, revealed uh, via inspiration in the biblical text. So what we're going to re- read here from Dan Webster, a true postmodern too, um, is uh, is a, a, an example of eisegesis. Okay? So from the Episcopal News Service, we read, The gospel lesson in the revised common lectionary that was read on Trinity Sunday, that would be June 19th, this year in some Christian churches is the ending of the Gospel of Matthew. It is also known as the Great Commission. 
Uh, the words of Jesus that we are to make disciples of all nations, Matthew 28, 19, has been used by Christians through the centuries as a club. The missionaries who accompanied the conquering and invading armies from the Christian nations sometimes confronted their heathen foes with a be-baptized-or-die form of evangelism. <clears throat> Hang on a second here. kind of hurts to talk that way. Um, but uh, I, I uh, read it with that dramatic note on purpose what are we what what is this this is postmodern liberal propaganda okay um i i would like um dan uh webster to provide for me all of the historical documentation that shows that the predominant uh way which christian missionaries have operated in the world is to basically go out on the mission field and tell those poor pagans, be baptized or die. Um, now, uh, granted, I completely understand that there are historical examples of people who in their zeal for proclaiming the gospel have engaged in such tactics. However, I find it hard to believe, um, and uh, I, as somebody who's who has a minor in history, um, I, I I don't see any significant evidence that this was either a predominant form of evangelism or, or, or a major way in which evangelism was done. There are some instances of this taking place, but I think that they are isolated incidents and outside of the norm. Biblical Christianity does not work like Islam. Islam did spread at the edge of a sword, convert, submit or die. So here we've got Dan Webster basically rewriting history in such a way that the Great Commission has been used as an imperialist club against indigenous peoples, telling them be baptized or die. I just don't think that that um, fairly represents missionary work uh, throughout the ages, uh, you know, Christian missionary work. That, that, that definitely uh, represents Muslim or Islamic uh, missionary work, but not Christian. And if Dan disagrees, then I would like him to provide us with the historical documentation showing how this is really how Christianity spread. I don't think it did. Anyway, <clears throat> Dan continues. The Great Commission more recently has been used by some conservative and breakaway groups as a litmus test to determine in their mind just how Christian one really is. <laughs> Notice the propaganda-esque uh, nature of this particular piece written by Dan. <clears throat> what is often overlooked are Jesus' words in verse 20 about teaching those new disciples everything that I have commanded you. Really? Uh, yeah, I agree there's a whole bunch of people missing that part in the seeker-driven movement. They just give people a spattering of uh, relevant life tip verses, but that's a completely different topic. But anyway, <clears throat> Dan continues. He says, Everything would indicate that the great commandment to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. But what is also overlooked? is how Jesus got to that final instruction to his disciples because he didn't start out that way. Really? So Jesus didn't start out with basically um, love God with all your heart, mind, and strength? He, Jesus didn't start off that way? Really, Dan? Serious? 
So he's, <clears throat> he says, if we look at the sending out of the twelve, Matthew chapter 10, verse 5, Jesus pointedly tells them not to go to the Gentiles nor to the Samaritans. Go instead to the lost sheep of the people of Israel, Jesus says. I suspect, had that been the final word, we would all be worshiping in Hebrew on Sundays or Friday nights, rather, or we wouldn't be followers of Jesus at all, since there would have been no Paul setting up communities around the Mediterranean that eventually spread the good news to the ends of the known world. Now, this is where this you got to pay close attention. Dan is engaging in a, in a, a Bible-twisting technique known as eisegesis. Now, in Matthew 10, verse 5... We do have Jesus sending out the twelve and giving them instructions, you know, to not go to the Gentiles, but only to the Jews. However, this does not mean that Jesus had no intention of having the disciples ever go to Jews. He's reading this into the text. Instead, what we find there in Matthew 10 is kind of like a training run. You know, Jesus is instructing them on how to spread the gospel. And on this particular training mission, you know, prior to the Great Commission, he wants them only to go to the lost people of Israel, to the lost sheep of Israel. It's not because Jesus didn't believe that the gospel was for uh, for Gentiles as well. In fact, let me come back to um, Genesis chapter 22, okay? If you uh, remember... We, uh, t- we talked about Genesis chapter 22 earlier today, but uh, Genesis chapter 2, God speaking to Abraham, verse 17, I will surely bless you, I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven, as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Now, there in verse uh in there in verse 18 we have clearly uh, uh, basically a a recitation of God of what he told Abram uh before Abram set out for the the uh for the, the promised land before set out for Canaan where God says in Genesis chapter 12 verse 3 I will bless those who bless you and and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all of the families of the earth shall be blessed so this speaking about you know this is a prophecy about the Messiah and it's basically the Abrahamic promise is that the seed, the Messiah, when he comes, all nations of the world will be blessed. Now, Jesus being God in human flesh and being the Messiah, the off, the promised offspring of Abraham, the promised seed of the woman from the book of Genesis, knew precisely the fact that he was going to die for the sins of the world and that he this would be and that you know through him all the nations of the world would be blessed okay now um dan here is conveniently omitting all of this information because it would mess up his premise okay because he's trying to get somewhere he's got an agenda and he's trying to make the bible fit his agenda and so here he's he's basically painted jesus as a um a racist jew okay who has no intention no intention whatsoever of having the good news being spread to gentiles but that was never god's plan and we know this from the Old Testament, and Jesus being the Messiah, the promised offspring from Genesis, was to be a blessing for all nations. So to read into Matthew chapter 10 that Jesus somehow was being, uh, basically being a racist Jew who only wanted the gospel to go to Jews 
is to read something into the text that isn't there and to paint Jesus in a light that is not biblically or historically or theologically accurate at all. Okay, but here's his agenda. We continue. Okay, um, next paragraph. So, so what happened to Jesus, according to Dan? Jesus changed, okay? Well, well, there was that uppity Canaanite woman a few chapters later in Matthew chapter 15 who came shouting that her daughter was ill and would the son of David please heal her. We see a different kind of Jesus, I suspect, that most of us would not like. He ignores her, which he would have been, which would have been acceptable in that culture given the norms of men not speaking to women in public. His disciples urge him to send her away, but she pleads with him his response i've been sent only to the lost sheep of the people of israel she kneels before him and begs his response borders on rude and condescending it is not good to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs here we see a side of jesus we'd rather not he had just called her a dog as well as the indigenous people of canaan she was she insulted if so we don't know but she does challenge jesus by saying yes lord but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table now funny enough he omits the next part of this where jesus commends this woman for her great faith she already had faith in the messiah and jesus in his interaction with her highlights the fact that she has faith and that you know it's basically a precursor a foretaste of the blessing of all nations through Jesus and so, you know so Jesus answered verse 20 then Jesus answered oh woman great is your faith be it done for you as you desire okay so yeah i, I would recommend getting a good commentary or reading a uh, listening to a good sermon on this passage because what um Dan here is involved in is eisegesis and it's a and this is a postmodern propaganda piece so basically he's trying to create the impression Oh, well, all of a sudden, Jesus changed his mind. He went from being a racist Jew to being more open-minded about those those dog Gentiles. That's not what happened at all in this text, and there isn't any passages that say that. This is him reading into the text this agenda that doesn't actually exist in the text itself. Anyway, we continue. Um, so that is... A turning point in Jesus' whole ministry, according to Dan. From then on, this gospel we have been given became available to everyone. That encounter with an uppity Gentile woman changed Jesus forever. Actually, no. The text doesn't say that at all. And the reality is, is that Christianity remained pretty much a Jewish phenomenon until Acts chapter 10. Now notice, this is the passage that you should be going to when you talk about how God the Holy Spirit is including Gentiles and being a blessing to them. Um, Let me read to you. I'm going to read to you probably most, if not all, of Acts chapter 10 to make my point. Now notice what what Dan was doing here was reading something into the text, basically saying this was a turning point in Jesus' ministry. He went from being a racist Jew to changing his mind, and now he wants to bless everybody. That is a complete lie, and that's not what the text says. And when the when the disciples begin to preach the gospel, they didn't begin with the Jew uh, with the the Gentiles. They began with the Jews only. And God, the Holy Spirit, had to kind of give the uh, disciples a kick in the rump. Let me give you an example. Acts chapter ten. This is the passage you should be going to. 
At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all of his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. Let me help you out here. This man is a Gentile. He is an Italian. He is a Roman soldier. He's part of it. You know, he's part. He's a centurion. He's a Roman soldier. And he's a convert to Judaism. He already believes in and trusts in Yahweh, okay? Um, But he has not converted completely to Judaism because he hasn't been circumcised yet. But he believes and trusts in the one true God. You can already say Cornelius is a believer. But he's not permitted into full fellowship in the synagogue because he has not been circumcised. Okay, we continue. Um, about the ninth, uh, okay, so uh, he gave generously, he prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly a vision of an angel of God come to him and say to him, Cornelius, and he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. This is also more proof that uh, this guy had faith because Hebrews eleven six says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. So he has faith and his and now his, you know, his works uh, are, are a pleasing aroma, a memorial. They come up before God, and he recognizes them as good works because he trusts in the coming Messiah. Okay, got it? And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop. At about the sixth hour, he was going. He was praying, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance, and he saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending down, being let by, down by its four corners to the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came again a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, a Gentile, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them to be his guests. The next day he rose and went uh, went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up. I too am a man. 
And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then, why you sent for me? Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who was called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth, and he said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. <laughs> Great sermon. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed, because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues, extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people? who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus, and then they asked him to remain for some days. So there you go. That's the passage you go to. Now, um, Dan here, as a well, as a, an Episcopal priest, should know his Bible better than this. But again, he's got an agenda. He has, this is a propaganda piece that he's written. And there's a, there's an there's an axe he's trying to grind. So he's trying to create the impression that there's a difference between the earlier Jesus and the later Jesus. That the earlier Jesus was a racist Jew who had no intention whatsoever of being a blessing to the Gentiles. But then this Canaanite woman changed his mind, and he had an epiphany. He had an apostrophe. Lightning struck his brain, and he realized, oh no, I need to repent. Mm mm. That's not what the text says, and despite Dan's <clears throat> best efforts to try to make it so. So we continue with Dan's piece. 
So, when we are challenged by a changing culture, changing neighborhoods, and changing attitudes, why do our congregations not change? Are we afraid? Might we fail? Might we do something wrong? All understandable responses, but Jesus Jesus promises in Matthew to be with us always. Jesus is indeed with us, as we can see in the videos on the Episcopal Church Center website, about congregations who've stepped out in faith to respond to their changing context. They demonstrate that congregations can remake themselves into new expressions of the gospel and thrive. He is with us in the Reverend Tom Brackett's ministry from the Church Center as a missioner, as a missioner for new church planting, fresh expressions, and redevelopment. And in the Episcopal Church Foundation's Vital Practices website and Vital Post blog, we no longer live in Christendom. The mission field begins at the sidewalk just beyond the narthex. All it takes is the will of the congregational leaders and being open to the Holy Spirit. We are, after all, a people of faith. Jesus changed. So what's stopping us? And uh, by the way, when we're talking about the Episcopal Church, the things that really need to change, well, we need to be, we need to have, we need to rethink how we, um, we think about homosexuals, those who are caught in, you know, in sexual sins and things like that. I mean, those are so passe. Jesus changed and so can we. You see, but here's the question here. If, I mean, if we were to take his theology to its logical conclusion, um, and Jesus changed. How do we know that Jesus isn't still changing to this day? And then if Jesus is still changing, despite the fact that God's word said that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, uh, and Jesus being God in human flesh doesn't change, uh, even though, you know, even though, so if, if Dan here, uh, Dan Webster's right, and Jesus changed, how do we know he isn't still changing today? And how can we determine with any kind of certainty which direction Jesus is changing toward? How do we know that Jesus isn't changing into a Nazi? I mean, if that's the case, then it would be really silly of us to, uh, you know, to be so open-minded. We should be more cl- because Jesus is changing in that direction. How do we know that Jesus isn't changing into a communist? I mean, how do you, how do you know? How do you know that Jesus isn't turning into a full-blown laissez-faire capitalist? I mean, if Jesus changed once, he can change again, and uh, you got to stick your finger into the wind and figure out which direction Jesus is changing so you, you don't run afoul of the, of the new thing that Jesus is doing. Yeah, you see that? See, this is a, this is an this is a a twisting of God's word using eisegesis, ignoring the clear passages that address this uh, issue directly, in order to create a pop a, a false impression that the church can create new expressions of the gospel and change and you know and adapt to the changing cultural circumstances so that we can blend in rather than stick out like sore thumbs you know and you know have the scandal of the gospel constantly sticking out you know that bloody guy sitting on the standing on the you know on the cross crucified <laughs> no 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 that that's got to go we got to change yeah yeah, the the people who are constantly telling us that we need to change and would then engage in such Bible twisting to prove that we need to change because, well, of course, Jesus changed. They're not telling us the truth. We have the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Once for all. And Jesus, being God, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't change. And that actually provides us with a lot of comfort. A lot of comfort. And the message that we've been called to proclaim, repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name, just like Peter did, it's the same today. Yes, it's true that the mission field
field begins on the sidewalk right outside your door and right outside your church. But you're not really being a missionary unless you're bringing the apostolic message of Christ and him crucified for our sins and calling all sinners, yourself included, to repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name, won for us by him through the shedding of his blood in our place, taking the wrath of God upon himself for us. That's, uh, you know, that's the gospel. If you're going to bring something different, you're not really being a missionary. And if you're calling, saying, well, I can justify this because Jesus changed. No, you can't. That's not a proper handling of God's word. In fact, that's a twisting of God's word and making Jesus into something that he's not. The biblical word for that, by the way, is blasphemy. All right, we're up on our second break. We're not going to get to the other stories today, but uh, sermon review time when we come back. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. You can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Schmelevance. We preach Christ crucified for our sins. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Chris Roseboro here to talk about this month's perk for those of you who are members of the Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew. Have you ever been to Walt Disney World or Disneyland and taken a VIP tour of one of those parks? Well, if so, then you know just how valuable those tours can be in pointing you to things that you had never even noticed before. Well, this month's resource, Dr. Paul Kretzman's popular commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, is like a VIP walkthrough tour of the Gospel of Matthew itself. It's fascinating, in-depth, written on a lay level, and it'll help you to achieve a much deeper appreciation and understanding of this vital, vital biblical book. Now, if you would like to get a copy of this, this is only available for our crew members. So the way you join our crew is visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. Click on the one that says Join Our Crew. You're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And once you fill that out, we will send you an email giving you instructions on how to download this wonderful book. So head on over to fightingforthefaith.com. Join our crew today. And thank you for your support. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith Sermon Review time. Boy, I went long on that last segment. Have to save the other uh, stuff for tomorrow's edition. (laughs) Isn't it funny when I end up preempting myself? I usually don't get offended when I preempt myself. I have a big enough ego to allow myself to be preempted by myself. <laughs> Sounds wrong. Uh... The good, the bad, the ugly, we review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via the Verve in Las Vegas, Nevada. Uh, life coach, um, 
Chief Vision Caster Vince Antonucci presiding. Now, uh, as we dive into this uh, sermon, if you can call it that, the name of it, by the way, is A Life Worth Watching. Notice notice that he's that Vince isn't engaging in reading the biblical texts at all. Instead, he's giving us a thumbnail summary sketch of what goes on in some of these biblical texts. But he doesn't read them. And the reason why he's not reading them is because if he read them, he could not come to the conclusions that he's coming to. He's going to actually preach a full-blown, self-centered, false gospel. And the only way that this is possible is for him to not read the biblical text. Okay? It's going to be about, by the way, uh, Abraham, whom we've discussed a little bit today. But um, anyway, let me kill the music here. Without any further ado, here is A Life Worth Watching uh, by Vince Antonucci. Here we go. Are any of you uh, phone people? You're the type who likes to get phone calls, likes to be on the phone. Some of you, yeah. I am not that type. I think the world would be a better place if we got rid of all the phones. And, uh, and there are so many things that go wrong with phone calls, I think. Like, have you ever gotten this call? Uh, you answer, you're like, hello? And the person says, hey. And you're like, hey. And then they start talking, but you have no idea who it is, right? And, and you're like becoming Sherlock Holmes, trying to, you know, decipher the clues to figure out who am I talking to. And they're like, blah, 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 Sunday. And you're like, they said Sunday. Maybe it's somebody from church. I'm not sure. And, right? Like, not cool. Uh, the other phone call you get uh, is when, I hate this, is when you say hello, and the person on the other line says, hey, who is this? Have you ever had that one? You're like, no, you called me. I ask you who you are. Apparently he's been to the Bill Ingvall School of uh, Sermonizing. You begin with a comedy, um, a stand-up comedy sketch. You don't ask me who this is. Who this is is who this is. Who are you? Right. Uh, the other call that's great is when somebody wakes you up and uh, and so you're asleep and the phone's ringing and you pull one of these. You're like, <coughs> and then you, you, you're not able to fully wake yourself up. So you're like, hello. And they're like, oh, I'm sorry. Were you sleeping? And you can never just say, yes, I was sleeping. Right. You have to lie and say, no, no, I wasn't sleeping. Who sleeps at three thirty in the morning? Not sleeping. No, not sleeping. You ever gotten a really big phone call? Like a, a big one, like, like maybe you woke up that morning. It's going to be an ordinary day. And then the phone rang. And what happened in that phone call, what the person said on the other end of the line, changed your life forever. You are getting a really big phone call? Well, that's exactly what happened and what changed the life of a guy named Abraham. But today we're starting a brand new series called A Life Worth watching. And you probably started to get the idea by now, but uh, we're going to think about this fact that a lot of us spend a lot of our lives looking at the lives of other people. You know, it may be that we watch shows like TMZ or uh, E! True Hollywood Stories or VH1 Behind the Music. It may be that we read People or Us Weekly or National Enquirer. We may get on uh, the internet and check out blogs of other people or we may get tweets on our phones from celebrities and, and uh, athletes. But we spend a lot of our lives watching the lives of other people. And, and I wonder, I wonder if maybe the reason is because our lives aren't interesting enough to hold our attention. Maybe a little difficult to admit, but is it possible that we are so obsessed with other people because our lives just aren't that interesting? And so it's almost like we have to live vicariously 
through someone else. Well, in this series, uh, we're going to talk about transitioning from living a life of watching others to living a life worth watching. From Okay, now notice, right here at the beginning of the sermon, the setup for the problem is, is are, are you voyeuristic? Are, are you living your life vicariously through other people? Do you, want, do you think that your life is so boring that you have to end up living uh, the life of your favorite movie star uh, you know, by reading Us Weekly or something like that? Uh, is that the problem that the Bible addresses? And, you know, well, let's just put it this way. Okay, we could say that the Bible addresses this. But the problem is is that what we're dealing with here is a fruit of the of our root problem, and our root problem is sin. And so Vince here isn't really telling us, you know, a real problem that needs to be fixed. I mean... Uh, because he's not really addressing this in true biblical format, okay? And, you know, the, are you living your life vicariously through somebody else? It's probably because your life is so boring. Well, we don't worry. God has something that will spice your life right up and make your life so exciting that you want to live your life rather than somebody else's life. <laughs> I'm listening to this going, where did you get this out of the Bible? And he's blaming this on the story of Abraham which is worse because the story of Abraham is one of the pivotal foundational stories that point us to Jesus Christ and him crucified for our sins. But we'll get there. Let's continue. From kind of being like life voyeurs to being life voyagers. And the way you do that, the the way you live the kind of life that, that holds your interest is, believe it or not, through living a life of faith. A life of faith is the only life that really gives you the adventure that you're looking for and that allows you to, to be interested in your own life and, and escape this. Okay, wait a second. So, so the, the, the solution to boring life syndrome um, that makes you want to live vicariously through other people is a life of faith. Now, we've got to be careful here. And the reason why we need to be careful, okay, is that not every time that the Bible talks about faith is it talking about saving faith, okay? So um, right now we'll split it into two categories. There could be more, but let's focus on the two primary categories when we talk about faith. First of all, what is faith? The Greek noun, pistis, uh, means faith. It means trust, an unwavering trust, Okay. And the, the the verb form of it, pistuo, again, that's the verbal form of it. It's, you know, so I am believing, I am trusting, I am trusting. Now, faith always has an object. So the question is, who are you trusting or what are you trusting? And then the, the, you can say that there's a, there's a secondary part of it, trusting him or her or it or what, trusting it for something. So when we talk about saving faith... We're talking about an unwavering trust in God for the forgiveness of our sins won by Jesus Christ on the cross. That's really, you can boil saving faith down to that that, that, that nugget of, of, you know, and that, this is why the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says that let me remind you of those primary things that Christ was crucified for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was raised again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So, when we talk about saving faith, we're talking about that unwavering trust in God for the forgiveness of our sins. So faith always has an object. Now, there's a secondary meaning or understanding of faith, and that is trusting God in our day-to-day circumstances, doing what 
God has called us to do because we believe tr- we fear love and trust in him even if that will result in bodily harm persecution or suffering that's kind of the idea here and so um if you know so God has called us to trust him for the day to day okay and that is a fruit of our saving faith. So when we talk about faith in these categories, we have to make those kind of, those two distinctions clear so we know what you're talking about here. Now, what happens is in this sermon is, is that the passages that he refers to, sometimes it's talking about one definition of faith, and sometimes it's actually talking about the other. And he's not making that distinction. As a result of it, he's turning everything into uh, God is, you know, basically the, the, the gist of the sermon is going to be is God has a special, exciting life for you that he wants to reveal to you. But you've got to you've got to trust him for it so that you can then no longer have a boring life, which, by the way, is a false gospel. But um, it's not this isn't even really exactly what the, the Bible teaches regarding faith in Christ so that we do what he tells us to do. Now, here's the other piece of it, is that um, the, the, the immediate question comes up is, what is it that God has called you to do? So many people think that they've got some special vision or plan that, they, that God is getting ready to reveal to them, and they've just got to they've just got to believe enough for it, and and so it's some kind of a personal uh, personal plan for your life. But the reality is this: is that God's word has already reveals what it is that God wants you to do. God wants you to love your wife, love your husband, be a good father, be a good mother, uh, honor your father and your mother, to be faithful to your wife, to not lie, to not cheat, to not steal, to not commit adultery, to not covet. These are the things that God wants you to do. God wants you to work quietly with your hands and make enough money to provide for yourself, your family, as well as for those who are in need. This is what God's Word clearly reveals is His will for all of us. Now, what that looks like in your life and my life, it, funny enough, that's actually under uh, that's under your decision, okay? You choose who you want to marry. You do, not me. You choose, and, and God, so many think, people think that God has a special plan for you. You choose who you're going to work for, what job you're going to do, what career you're going into. And God, and you love and serve your neighbor in the vocation that God has put you into. So, so many people try to just overcomplicate this, you know, and get on their face and you wait for God to reveal some super special plan for their life. And that's kind of what Vince is talking about here. You know, is your life plain, boring, and ordinary? Well, the Bible actually teaches you to thank God for that. And my proof for this is in the epistles. For instance, in Colossians, the Apostle Paul giving basically encouragement to Christians who are slaves. They don't even own themselves. The Apostle Paul tells them to obey their masters as if they were, as if their masters were Christ himself. Paul doesn't say, wait for that special plan so that you can get out of your boring, mundane life of slavery. Instead, he says, love God and serve your master as if your master is Jesus Christ himself. So Christianity doesn't promise to rescue you from a boring life or to rescue you from a life of suffering or to rescue you from the mundane. Instead, Christianity teaches through the revealed word of God 
that many times that what the mundane thing is the thing that God has called you to do. The humble thing is the thing that God has called you to do. In other words, you serve God, you mothers out there, by wiping snotty noses, by changing diapers, and uh, and making meals every day. Husbands, you serve God by getting in your vehicle, your commuter car, and commuting to work and working in a cubicle for 40 hour, 40 plus hours a week. That actually is a good work. You see, you know, so here, this type of sermonizing preaches a false gospel, gives a false promise that the Bible doesn't offer, and it teaches you to despise rather than account the blessings that you have. It teaches you to despise the common uh, vocation that God has put you into rather than embrace it as a true calling from God and see it as the means by which you can love and serve your neighbor. So, um, yeah, we've got a big problem here. This idea, this prison where we have to live vicariously through someone else. And so we're going to learn that in this series by looking at the life of a guy named Abraham in the Bible. Abraham lived kind of a noteworthy life. I mean, like, uh, for instance, we're still talking about him today, and he lived thousands and thousands of years ago. The reason why Abraham's life is noteworthy, first and foremost, is because he is a direct descendant of uh, Jesus Christ. He is in the bloodline of Jesus Christ, and he is one of the high water marks in the story of the scarlet thread that runs through history of the Messiah, God acting on our behalf to basically undo the damage done by Satan in the Garden of Eden and through the deception where man fell. In fact, Jesus was promised in the Garden of Eden to Adam and Eve. You know, specifically, uh, God promised Eve that the seed of the woman, her seed, would crush the head of the serpent. Okay? Um, And so from Genesis all the way through the Old Testament, we're following the genetic line of Jesus Christ. Abraham wasn't just somebody who lived an extraordinary, noteworthy life. Um, And, I mean, seriously, I wouldn't want to live Abraham's life, regardless of how noteworthy it is. Um, Yeah, he was screwed up in ways that I'm not screwed up, and I don't want to be screwed up in that way. But anyway, but see, we're all screwed up. That's the thing. So the the idea here is, is that the other reason why Abraham is noteworthy is that he believes and trusts God... And that belief, that trust, results in in Abraham it being credited to him as righteousness. So we're talking about Abraham having saving faith, and he believing and trusting in God, and God imputing to him Christ's righteousness. In fact, the righteousness of of the of the the one seed, the offspring, who would be the Messiah. So uh, Abraham's greater grandson, if you would, Jesus Christ, is the one whom Abraham trusts in. And so this is what the whole Abrahamic covenant is all about. It's all about pointing us to Christ. And we see clearly in the story of Abraham um, those allusions to Jesus Christ that make it absolutely unmistakable that it's really all about Jesus. And so the, the nowhere in the New Testament do you read that Abraham's, you know, the Abraham is, um, how do I put it this way, that he's... Um, held up in high esteem because he lived a noteworthy life. Like, oh boy, I'm so glad that he didn't have a boring life. Look at how unboring Abraham's life was. Yet that's exactly how Vince is preaching him. Uh, If you asked a Christian person, who is the father of your faith? He would say, Abraham. If you asked a Jewish person, who's the father of your faith? Abraham. If you asked a Muslim, who's the father of your faith? 
Abraham. It's kind of a big deal. And he lived an adventurous life. I mean, his life was amazing. And the reason... Is yeah, somehow I don't think of Abraham as the great adventurer. It's because he lived a life of faith. And it all started one day when he got this life-changing call. We're going to look at it in a second. But basically what happens is this. Abraham wakes up. It's an ordinary day. But during the day, the, the phone rings. And it turns out that it's God. And God says to Abraham, I want you to go. I want you to leave your home, leave your homeland, and I want you to go. And, and you don't get to know yet where you're going, but, but I'll make that clear later. I want you to bring your family, and I, I just want you to leave. And, uh, and at that point, he just has a wife. And, and so God says, listen, if you go, I'll give you a child, and I will give you many descendants. Okay, now I'm going to point something out here. I said this at the top of the, uh, the sermon that he's not actually reading the biblical text, okay? And it's important that he doesn't, because if he were to actually read this from the Bible in context, he couldn't make the statements that he's making. Now, notice what he just said, that God gave Abraham a phone call, this is what we call contextualization, and said, I want you to go somewhere else, and if you go, then I will give you a son. Let me read for you the... The text, if you have your Bible, flip on over to Genesis chapter 12. Now, Yahweh, the Lord, said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all families of the earth shall be blessed." Now, um, in this commissioning of Abraham, of Abram here, did you hear anything about God saying, if you go, then I will give you a child? Notice that God is calling Abram, and God is unilaterally promising him things, okay? And he, God did not say here, if you do this, then I will give you a child. The biblical text does not say that at all, Okay. We continue. And your people will be my people. I will be your God. I will bless you, but I need you to go. And that was the call that changed Abraham's life forever and turned his life into an amazing adventure that we still talk about today. And it was truly a life worth watching. And so let's look at that original call. Uh, we're going to be in the Bible in the book of Genesis, which is the first book in the Bible. We're going to start in Genesis chapter 12. If you have a Bible, turn there. If you don't, we'll put the verses on the screen so you're set. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, we give them out for free. There's no catch, no cost. Back at the Velcro bar, which is a place where you can get your questions answered. You can sign up for stuff and you can get a Bible. So Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 4. Ready? Uh, here's what it says. It says, the Lord had said to Abram, okay, it says Abram, Abram is Abraham, and we'll talk later about what happens with that, but same guy, Abram, at this point, he's Abram, not Abraham. The Lord had said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now, that promise of blessing, we've talked about this earlier today, that's a, that is a direct prophecy regarding Jesus Christ. 
the fact that all the nations of the world would be blessed through the seed of Abraham, who is Jesus. Let's see if he picks up on that. So Abraham left as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Lot was his nephew. Abraham was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. And so uh, this is kind of the initial scene from Abraham's life. In the weeks to come, uh, the next three weeks of the series, we're going to look at some other scenes and, and some other parts of Abraham's faith adventure with God. But today I want to talk about what we... Faith adventure. There is no, there is no biblical writer that discusses the faith adventure of Abraham. This is a completely fanciful interpretation that is inserted into the biblical text. It's not there. We can learn from this original call that God gives Abraham. All right. And so I guess the first thing we learn is that God calls, that God calls. Now, we're going to see some unique things about Abraham and his life's journey, but this is not one of them. This is something that happens with every person. God calls. God called Abraham. God has called me, and God is calling you. Got any verses that say that? God's calling you. Now, how God calls, it's different. Uh, It can be different. Like, it may not be this audible, big, booming voice from the sky that I, I guess it was with Abraham. I mean, God may call you. He may speak to you very quietly deep inside of you, but but you know. You know? Where does the Bible say this? Where does the Bible say that God's going to call me and I, it'll be a small voice, but I'll know. Call me to do what? Have a faith adventure? You know, God may speak to you through your conscience, through this, this feeling of, man, I need to do this or I shouldn't do that. God may speak to you through uh, a friend and a challenging conversation that you have. God speaks to me through his word, and I know it's God that's speaking because it's God's word. And, and that may be God calling you through that friend. God may speak to you through a, a sermon, a, a message you hear here at Verve, and God just kind of... Not, not likely. It speaks to you, and you're like, man, that was for me. I know it was for me. God may speak to you through something you read, and it just it almost like comes off the page, and you're like, that's, that's my life. I need to do that, and, and that very well might be God calling. God calls everyone. The question isn't whether or not God... Okay, notice what he's doing here with the story of Abraham. He's pulling it down to your level, making the story about you. The story of Abraham is not about you at all. And Abraham's story is not normative for Christians or for anybody. So he's trying to make the story of Abraham normative to everybody and everything. And it just doesn't work that way. And that's not why the story is written for us in the biblical text. God will call you or has called you. The question is... Will you pick up the phone? Will you pick up the phone? You you know, there was a day uh, in our world. I'm old enough, I remember this. When if your phone rang, you answered it. Anyone else old enough to remember those days, right? It was like, the reason you had a phone is so that other people could get a hold of you. And so if your phone rang, it was like, whoop-de-doo! The phone is serving its purpose. Someone wants to talk to me, and I will therefore answer the phone not so much today, right? Today, you know, phones ring in and everybody's just ignoring it and we'll just let it ring, right? We, we don't answer the phone. Uh, there was a time when answering machines roamed the earth. Some of you may be old enough to remember this. And, and there would be a lot of people who do this thing where they would screen people's calls. The way they would do it is uh, when the beep came and the person started talking, you could hear their voice through this 
ancient answering machine thing. And, and then you could decide if you wanted to talk to them. Did you have any friends who, like, you'd wait for the beep, and then you'd be like, it's me. And then they would answer the phone and be like, hey. And you're like, hey. And then every once in a while, you'd call them, and you'd be like, it's me. And they wouldn't answer. And you'd be like, oh, you better not be home. You better not be screening me out, right? Like, because people, you know, didn't stop answering their phones because now they can screen their calls. And today we live with this thing called caller ID, uh, which I think probably originally started so that you didn't have to talk to telemarketers, but it's gone way past that because now you don't have to talk to anyone that you don't want to talk to, right? You don't have to answer the phone unless it's someone that you want to answer the phone and talk to. But here's the deal. Uh, I think a lot of us do this with God. I I think a lot of us have this deal uh, where we don't necessarily answer the phone when it's God calling because we have this caller ID kind of thing. And we know, you know, we can kind of see the God come up on the caller ID. You know, we're we're hearing a song, we're hearing a message, somebody's talking to us or just deep in our heart, something happens, we're like, oh. And and you know, it's like caller ID says, this is God, like this is something you need to do. And it's kind of like, yeah, I'm going to screen that call. I'm not, I'm not going to answer that one because that's not something I want to, to talk about right now, right? God calls. He's calling you. The, the only question is, will you pick up the phone? And I wonder, I wonder how God's calling you right now, like lately, what, what God has been calling you to. Okay, notice he hasn't actually provided a biblical text that says that God wants to call you. Maybe God has been calling you to, to become a Christian. You've been coming here to Verve for a while, and the truth is, you believe this stuff. You've gotten to a point where you believe this stuff we talk about is true. And you know that God is calling you. I'm a Christian, and I don't believe the stuff that you're saying is true, Vince, because you mishandle God's word chronically. Into a relationship with him, that he's asking you to become a follower of his son, Jesus. But you just haven't pulled the trigger yet. We're having baptisms today. After our second service, we've got like 10 or so people are getting baptized. And, and you've heard us talk about that the last few weeks. Baptism is when a person begins a new relationship with God. It's what you do to start that relationship with God. And, and you've heard us talking about it, and you almost said yes. You, you almost signed that paper, but you just didn't do it. Because God is calling. You just kind of been screening his call. It could be that God's been calling you to, to serve, to, to volunteer on a team here at Verve. And, and he's saying, man, I made you to be a blessing to other people, not just for me to bless you. And, and I want you to make a difference with your life. And, and you, you've been thinking about it, but you just haven't quite done it because, honestly, you're kind of screening God's calls. You know? It might be that God's been calling you to be faithful uh, and obey him with your cash, with your money, and God's asked you to be generous, and, and you know God's asking you that, but it's like, eh, I'm not, I'm not going to answer that one. Maybe God's been calling you to break up with your boyfriend or girlfriend because you know, you know that it's just dragging you down, and, and you're not able to really live for God because of this relationship you're in, and, and you're just not answering that call. It, it might be uh, that God's calling you to stop doing something that you know you need to stop doing. You've known for a long time that you need to stop doing this something that you keep on doing. And, and God's asking you, he's challenging you, he's encouraging you, he's trying to inspire you to stop doing it. But you won't stop doing it and you just let the phone keep ringing. And I wonder if it's even possible that right now, because of something I just brought up, uh, your heart is pounding a little bit. 
Because you know, I, I'm okay. Now notice some of the things that he listed are actually revealed in God's Word as things that we are called to do. They're there in the Bible. Some of the things on the list, not so much. But the, those things that we are called to do, repent and be baptized and you know for the forgiveness of our sins, that's actually something that is told to us in God's Word and is clearly revealed. I don't need a still small voice nudging me. I've got God's Word clearly telling me that that's what His will is for me and you. And you, you understand what I'm saying? I'm talking to you. Right? You know God has been calling me about exactly what you're talking about. You, you know what God's been calling you about, and, and your heart is pounding. Let me tell you, that heart pounding inside of you, that's the phone ringing. That's the phone ringing. God's calling you, and he's asking you to pick up the phone. And to- Notice the subjective nature here. It, it's that, you know, that if your heart is pounding, then you know that that's God calling you. Well, um, what is that again? Uh, oh, yeah, I remember. Yeah, this is you don't determine what God is doing you with you through your feelings. Answer his call. He calls all of us. The only question is, will you answer? You know, probably some of you are thinking, you know, that sounds good, Vince, but you don't understand. What God is calling me to is really difficult. Like, it's not an easy thing, you know. If it was easy, I'd do it, but it's really difficult. And you know what I would tell you about that? You're probably right. You're probably right. I don't know if we have any Bible scholars in the room. Somebody who's like read the whole Bible and kind of knows the thing. But <laughs> I doubt that there's any of those there at the verb. But if so, I would ask you a little Bible trivia question. Here it is. Uh, how many times, or you can just guess if you're not quite a Bible scholar yet, yet uh, how many times in the entire Bible does God call someone to an easy task? The answer is zero. It never happens. There's never a time in the Bible where God calls somebody and they're like, oh, yeah, no problem. Yeah, I can do that. That's easy. Never happens. Every time God calls someone, they're like, mm-hmm. That kind of misses the point because uh, not everybody on planet Earth or not every Christian is called to do the types of things that God called the people of of the Bible to do. And by the way, it was God who did all the major work in the Bible anyway. Um, Yeah, just read the stories. God's the big miracle worker, not the human beings. Always. You know why? Because if it's easy, you you don't need God. Right? If it's easy, you don't have to rely on God. You don't need faith in God. But, but God's trying to have us live this life where we're in this like interdependence with him and we're in a partnership. We're living life in a relationship with him and we need to need him. So he calls us to difficult things. And so your heart pounding, if you're like, but it's too hard. Yeah, that's God. He's calling. He calls. <sighs> Not necessarily. He calls all of us. Again, do you have any clear passages that say this? The question is, will you answer the phone? And the problem is, if you don't, you will miss out on the adventure that God has for your life. Well, what if I don't want to go on an adventure? I, I, I kind of like my home and my normal life. I prefer that over traveling even. Which is what most people do. I mean, just honestly, it's not probably the nice thing to say. Maybe it's not politically correct. Most people miss out on the adventure of their lives. They just 
die someday. So Christianity offers people the adventure of their lives. No, it doesn't. There are no clear passages that say that this is the promise for people who are Christians. The adventure of a lifetime? Yeah, no. You don't want to miss out on the adventure. You don't want to keep living a life where you're watching lives of others. You want to live a life worth watching, a life that people talk about long in the future, right? But you have to answer the call. Will you pick up the phone? The sex- so if you pick up the phone, God will give you a life that will be worth watching. Other people will be worth the other people watching your life. What a narcissistic, self-centered, egotistical, completely uh, awful way of reading the biblical text. The second thing I learned from uh, from this story is that God's call always includes a promise. God's call always includes a promise. With Abraham, he says, listen, I want you to go. You have to leave everything and go. But here's the deal. As you go, if you obey me, if you answer the call, I will give you a child. The text doesn't say that. Abraham is 75 years old when he hears God's call. His whole life, he's wanted a child, a family. Okay, He's 75, no child. God says, in your old age... You go, I will give you a child. In fact, I will give you many descendants. They will become a nation of people. They will be my people. I will give you a land that will be your own. You kind of miss the whole point because included in that litany is the fact that Abraham's offspring, that is Jesus, uh, would, would be the blessing to all the nations in the world. God calls Abraham, but he includes a promise in the call, which is kind of cool, right? We should obey God regardless. If God asks you to do something, you should be aware of the fact that like, okay, God is God, I'm not. God is God, I'm not. God is God, I'm not. And so if he asks me to do something, I should probably just do it. I mean, he's, he's God, I'm not, right? But it's kind of cool that God says, hey, I'm God, you're not, you should disobey me regardless. But because I love you, because I'm a friend, because I want to parent you, I'll include a promise in your call. And so, listen, however God is calling you, you need to know that there is a promise with that call, right? And so let's say... Again, do you have any clear passages that say this? There isn't one. God is calling you to become a Christian. Well, God makes a promise to you. If you do this, if you, if you take that step, I will give you real and eternal life good promise. If God is calling you to serve here at Verve, to take on a volunteer position, God has made a promise to you in the Bible that he has given you gifts to use, abilities that will allow you to really make an impact for other people and in this church and in this community for him. And so your life will actually matter. Pretty good promise. If God is calling you to give and start being generous with your money, well, God gives you a promise. Check out what God promises actually. Notice how this is all law, quid pro quo. You do this, then God will do that. In, in the book of Malachi in the Old Testament. He says, bring the whole tithe. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. It's a pretty good promise. He says, be generous with your money and I will be generous back with you. If God is calling you uh, to, to break up with your girlfriend or boyfriend, you know, because that's what you need to do, he, he makes a promise to you, man, I will be with you. You will not be alone. And, and I'll give you the strength to do what you need to do. If God's calling you to stop doing that thing that you need to stop doing, and you've known it for a long time, but you just don't have the strength, 
God promises, I will give you the strength and I will bring healing from all the scars that you have because of this thing you've been doing and and I will lead you towards a healthy, whole life. What verses are those again? God calls and God's call always includes a promise. It always includes a promise. The other thing I learned in this story is that it takes faith to respond to God's call. It takes faith to respond to God's call, right? This gets back to that idea that, that God never calls anyone to an easy task. If he did, that would not require faith, right? But what God is after in your life, whether you realize this or not, what God wants to kind of form. Notice that this is built on logic, not a uh, sound biblical passage. Well, see, if God called you to something simple, then it wouldn't take faith. And then you would, you know, and then, well, whatever. This isn't built on a passage. This is built on some bizarre idea, not biblically grounded at all. In your life is faith. The Bible says repeatedly what God is looking for is faith. The Bible says that it is impossible to please God without faith. Hebrews eleven six, And yeah, that's talking about saving faith, trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. The faith that is talked about in Hebrews eleven six is saving faith. It's not talking about just believing that God's capable of doing big things to make your life adventurous. And so God wants to give you a challenging call, a challenging assignment, because that will take faith. That will take faith. You know, it's... um. It's like, uh, you know, God, here's what God's not looking for. Like, like, it's not this kind of deal where, like, you're walking down the road, and then all of a sudden God speaks and says, Vince. And you're like, yeah? And he says, there's a quarter on the sidewalk in front of you. Pick up that quarter and put it in your pocket. If you do, you'll have 25 more cents than you do now. It might help you buy something later. And you're like, okay, God, I'll do it. There is a quarter. Oh, that's all. Right? That doesn't take- Again, notice he's not actually teaching from a biblical text. He's just making these unfounded assertions about what God wants you to do or doesn't want you to do and how God's going to talk to you and give you some adventurous life and all this kind of stuff. But he isn't really actually teaching the Bible. He's just making these assertions out of thin air. Take faith to pick up a quarter, Right. God's looking for something that, that you'll be like, wow, I can't do this without you, God. It, you need to have faith, right? And, and so, like, with Abraham, just think, I mean, think about this story. God says, I want you to leave everything you've ever known and go. What if God called you to that? What would it look like if God called you in that kind of way? Like if God said, you're, you're sitting, I don't know, in your living room one day, and God says uh, to you, God says, Leave this house. And you're like, is that like a poltergeist? And, and God's like, no, it's me. It's God. And you're like, oh, man, I'm sorry. It was for a minute for like a scary movie. Like I was thinking like Amityville Horror or something. Uh, like, sorry about that. Now, what were you saying? And God says, I told you to go. Okay, but where am I going? You don't get to know that. You just need to go. But how would I know, like, uh, like when I get there, is there going to be like a welcome sign or a hotel or something? <sighs> this is just obnoxious. Again, notice he's trying to make uh, the story of Abraham's special calling uh, as, a, as a descendant of Jesus um, into something normative about your life. And this, 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 the story of Abraham is not your story. And ultimately, the story of Abraham points us 
to Christ. Let me give you a clear example of this, since um, that's really the whole point of the story of Abraham. If you have your um, Bible, flip on over to Genesis chapter 22. Spend a little bit of time here. I'll point you to the clear passage, and then maybe I'll I'll pull in a New Testament text too. It just depends. Anyway, Genesis chapter 22. Okay, Abraham does, by the way, he does obey God, and he goes to Canaan. There's a mixed bag of of events that occur there, okay. Um, you know, including a famine and him ending up in Egypt, lying about his wife being his wife, and you know, basically, he's saying he's his, you know that she's his sister. I, it's clear from the biblical text that Abraham, just like everybody else born as a natural descendant of Adam and Eve, is well dead in trespasses and sins, is is sinful by nature. Um, but God acts unilaterally. Um, in in the Abrahamic covenant that is established in in the book of Genesis, it's God acting, God promising, God is the one who's doing things, and um, and 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 the idea here is we read in in Genesis chapter fifteen is that Abraham believed God and it was credited or imputed to him as righteousness. This then gets this doctrine gets picked up then. In in our understanding of the New Testament doctrine of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ's work alone. And this is what prompts the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3 to basically say all of his works under the law, he considers them rubbish. That's a polite way of putting it. Uh, and he wants to be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of his own that comes to the law, but the righteousness that is by faith. This is the same righteousness that is by faith that Abraham has, and this is you, you read all about this in Genesis chapter 15, as well as uh, the book of Galatians and Romans chapter 4. This all picks up on this. But let me show you uh, the clearest passage from the story of Abraham that points us to Christ. So Abraham believed God that God would give him a son, even in his old age. God credited to him his righteousness. Isaac is eventually born, but there's this whole Ishmael thing, but that's a whole other story that we'll have to talk about later. But Isaac is born, and God, then we pick up the story here. Genesis chapter 22, after these things, God tested Abraham, said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on the mountains of which I shall tell you. Uh, Mount Moriah. Um, by the way, Mount Moriah is uh, the exact same mountain where the temple is built in Jerusalem. So God sends Abraham to the temple mount before the temple is ever built. Okay, And it's interesting to note that Jesus Christ, our great God and Savior, was crucified on this exact same mountain just outside the city gates of Jerusalem. Okay, This is all very important stuff. So, so Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place in which God had told him. On the third day, pay attention when God has things happen on the third day. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes, and he saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took it in his hand, the fire and the knife, so they went both of them up together. 
Now, if you're thinking, man, this sounds a lot like Jesus carrying his own cross beam on his way to Golgotha. You should go yeah, right. That's a, there's a reason why this sounds a lot like this. Okay, because this story, just like all the other stories in the Bible, point us to Jesus. So Isaac said to his father Abraham, "My father," he said, "Here, here I am, my son." He said, "Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering?" Abraham said, "God will provide for Himself." the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. <laughs> and yes, God did. So they went, both of them, together. And when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar and there, there and laid the wood in order to and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Does this sound like the crucifixion to you? It should. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord, this is Jesus himself, called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on that boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his, by his horns. Thicket. Mm-hmm. Think of thorns. Uh-huh. Should point you to Jesus Christ's thorns on, you know, the crown of thorns. Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place. This is on Mount Moriah where the temple was built and on the slopes of which Jesus Christ himself was crucified. Abraham named that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And what is it that God provided for us on Mount Moriah? The once for all sacrifice for sins, for your sins and for mine. For God did provide on Mount Moriah. He provided the lamb for the burnt offering. And it wasn't the son of Abraham. It was the only begotten son of God, Jesus Christ, crucified for your sins and for mine. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. Really, the story of Abraham, because Abraham is a direct ancestor to Jesus Christ. He's in the bloodline of Jesus Christ. This is really all about Jesus. And here in this redemption story, we see a vivid picture, a vivid allusion to Christ and him crucified for our sins in this testing of Abraham. And the fulfillment of the prophecy that God would provide the ram, the lamb for the burnt offering was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. You see, really, this is all. This is what it's all about. It's about Jesus. 
It's about God rescuing and saving humanity through the offspring, the seed of Abraham. That's really the important pivotal theological doctrinal stuff in the life of Abraham. To basically reduce Abraham's life down to an example of a life worth reflecting on because it was so adventurous is to miss the whole point. Because the whole point of the story of Abraham is to point us to repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name, to point us to Jesus Christ, the Lamb who was slain for the sins of the world on Mount Moriah. That's really what the story of Abraham is about. What Vince Antonucci is doing here is a crime, and he's actually preaching a false gospel and making promises for God that God actually hasn't made in his word or revealed in in the Bible. Yeah, this is really, really bad stuff that Vince is doing here. Now you're starting to annoy me. I said go. All right, but, uh, like, uh, I mean, this, this might be a little weird, but are you going to pay, like, the gas money, like, reimburse me or something? Because I don't know if you've seen the price of gas recently, but this could be a very expensive trip. Okay, fine. I'll ask someone else to go. <laughs> That's not funny. That's funny. <laughs> I'm I'm like waiting for your laugh. Okay. Uh but but that's not what Abraham said, is it? Right? God said, Go. Abraham said, All right, I'm gone. All right? And that took faith. It wasn't easy to go without knowing where you're going. It wasn't easy to leave everything he had ever known, but God wanted him to need faith. And God wants the same for you. God wants to form faith in you. And, and so he's going. Again, where does the Bible say that? Say this. He's not teaching on a text. He's just asserting these things. I'm going to call you to things that will require faith, and it won't be easy, right? But you have this this thing going for you. Sorry, Abraham's life is not your life. You're not called to do the things Abraham was called to do. The thing is that God promises you with the call. There's a promise, and He promises He will be with you that he will reward you for obeying. Uh, God says, I will be your reward for obeying. Because when you go and, and you start living by faith, you will know what it means to... Ra- Notice how he's turning this whole thing into the law. ...radically rely on me and to have this relationship that is authentic and real. And, and every day you need me and, and it will be the adventure of your life. And, and you will go, you will transition from living a life where you're like, what's everybody else doing today? To living a life where you're like, I can't even keep up with what's going on in my life. It, it's such an adventure. And other people will want to watch you. What a self-centered, narcissistic reading of the text. And he's not even reading the text. What kind of religion is this? Oh, I, I, I want to have the kind of life where people want to want to take note of me. <sighs> but it only happens when you answer the call. There's a promise with the call, and it takes faith to respond to God's call. Here, here's what else I learned in this story. Uh, when you respond to the call, it's a cool thing. There's a promise. You get an adventure. Like, like life starts really living, you know? <laughs> you get a promise, and there's an adventure. Really? No, but it might be embarrassing. It also might be embarrassing. And what? Where? Oh, man. Again, see, the, this whole sermon, the, it goes wrong because he's not actually reading the biblical text. He's making assertions about God and trying to, to back it up with allusions uh, from the biblical text. But he's not actually do, engaging in exegetical, expository teaching at this point. Maybe that's what's been holding some of you back from, like, answering the call. You're like, <laughs> be a little embarrassing. It will be. 
You're probably right. It probably will. Like, here's a really fascinating part of Abraham's story. Here's the deal. Uh, Abraham is actually named Abram. Okay? That's his name, Abram. He's 75 years old, does not have a kid. God says, go, and I will give you a child. Abram goes, and uh, 24 years pass. He's now 99 years old and still childless. Okay? God has not yet given him a child. He has not yet kind of given him the promise. He hasn't seen it. Okay? He's still childless. He's 99 now. Okay? I mean, he is about to be honored by Willard Scott on the Today Show for his 100th birthday with a Smucker's Jelly. He's 99. All right? So then God speaks to him again, and he says this. He says, Abraham, it's still going to happen. Like, keep the faith. I am going to give you a child. Go. Keep the faith. Child. All right? And he says, hey, by the way, Abram, Abram, From now on, you have a new name, Abraham. Say, so what? The name Abraham means father of many. Abraham means father of many. Can you picture Abram going back to his friends? And his friends are like, okay, now where in the biblical text does it say that Abraham went back to his friends? This whole stuff, this, what he's doing right here is flat-out eisegesis, just reading something into the biblical text, it ain't there. You can search from Genesis all the way to the book of Maps. You will not find a single reference that in the Bible that says any of this stuff. This is all just Vince's imagination. Hey, what's up, Abram? And he's like, hey. And they're like, you're talking to God again? Where did he tell you to go this time? And he's like, yeah, yeah, that's funny. Um, hey, listen, guys, uh, from now on... Um, it's not Abram, Abraham. Uh, kind of name change. I'm Abraham from now on. And, and his friends are like, <laughs> your name is Abraham, right? Because uh, Abraham means father of many, and you are the father of nothing. But you want us to call you Abraham. Abraham, yep, Abraham. And, and the next time he walks up, they're like, hey, Abram. He goes, yeah, no, it's still Abraham. They're like, yeah, you're still the father of none. It had to be embarrassing, right? How embarrassing would it be to go and tell everybody, from now on, call me father of many? This childless old man. Embarrassing. And listen, if you follow God's call, he will give you an adventure. You will be so glad you did. Okay, now notice again, nowhere in the text does it mention any of the stories of how Abraham was embarrassed by God's name change. Nowhere at all. Not a single passage of scripture says anything remotely even close to it. And you also probably will be a little embarrassed from time to time. You will. Like, I don't, I don't know. Uh, maybe like you start, you know, you, you give your life to Christ, you start living this life of faith. And so you, you say to your family, Hey, we should probably like pray before meals. I mean, that's what I've seen like on TV, like the Christian families, like they thank God for their food. Let's start doing that. That might be good. And so you start doing that, but then you go out to a restaurant and your little one says, Hey, shouldn't we pray? And you're like, with all these people around, I wasn't thinking that. Oh, that's a little, it's a little embarrassing, right? Or, or you realize, man, if I'm going to start, like, this relationship with God, I should probably let other people in on it. Like, they need God. So praying at a fast food restaurant is the equivalent of, a, of a, an adventurous life that could be embarrassing. Uh, too. And, and so you start like just trying to have some conversations with people at work in the neighborhood where you, you mention your faith, you mention Jesus, you invite them to church and you get some like weird looks, right? You get some people who are like, really? You're like in the church now? A little embarrassing. 
Or maybe, um, maybe when uh, you go out to a party and you found out, like, the Bible doesn't say you can't drink, but it does say, say not to get drunk. And, and so you've decided, oh, I'm not, I'm not going to get drunk anymore. And so you're at a party and you're, like, drinking a Coke. And uh, your friends are like, hey, <laughs> what, you, what, are you, what are you drinking there, a Coke? Oh, this is quite an adventure. Coke? And you're like, um, yeah, but I, uh, I don't use any ice. This is a straight man. How you like me now, right? And you're just like, wow, this is a little embarrassing. It's different. It's a little embarrassing, right? Well, guess what? That probably means that you're living a life of faith. It's an adventure. It's a life worth watching. Yeah, well, that sounds adventurous. Drinking Coke at a party. Wow. And it's a little embarrassing at times. That's okay. It was for Abraham. The, uh, the next thing I learned from uh, Abraham is that we will experience doubts along the way. Okay, you say yes, you say, all right, I'm going to do it. And you answer the call and you're just like, it's going to be awesome from now on. But what happens actually is throughout the journey, there, there are going to be moments where you're like, what am I doing? I really believe this stuff. Why did I say yes? There, there's going to be doubts along the way. This happens to Abraham over and over and over again. Throughout his story, we see him going, wait a second. Am I stupid? Why did I leave? And, and um, Can you give me a single example of where Abraham says, Wait a second, what am I doing? This is stupid. Can you show me from the biblical narrative in the book of Genesis where Abraham did that? And, uh, and like, why am I believing that God's going to give me a son? Because it's been 20-some years, and I still don't. Maybe I didn't hear God right. Maybe I'm nuts. Okay, I want to point something out here. There is, there is a passage where um, God is reminded by Abraham of his promises. And Abraham does a fine job of reminding God of his promises that had not yet been fulfilled. And Vince is going to pick up on this. But the thing is, is that what the point that Vince is making and what the biblical text is saying, they're two different things. Let me read it for you in context um, without uh, Vince's help so we can kind of see what's going on here. Anyway, um, if you have your Bible, flip on over to Genesis chapter 15. Now, let me give you the immediate context here. Actually, go to Genesis chapter 14. You have this uh, this kind of mini war. Uh, you know, these the, uh, some kings attack the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. They take them captive. They take Lot captive. Abraham Abraham has his uh, his three hundred men go and attack them, and they win the victory. And then watch this in Genesis um, chapter 14, verse 17. Here's what it says. After his return from the, de- from the defeat of Ke- uh, Kedal, oh, this is always a tough name, uh, Kedalahomir, uh, and the kings who were with him, the kings of Sodom, went out to meet him in the valley of Shiva, that is the king's valley, and Melchizedek, here's an appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament, and Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abraham and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Abram gave him a tenth of everything, and the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abraham said to the king of uh, Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten 
and the share of the men who went with me, let Anir, Eskol, and Mamre take their share. Now, after these things, after these events, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram, but Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continued childless in the heir of my house as Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Okay, So here Abram is pointing out the fact that God has not, has not made good on his word at this point. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. For your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward the heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And Abram believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. So Abram here could point to the very real fact that God had not yet fulfilled his promises. But God reaffirmed his promises to Abram, and Abram believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. This is a passage not about doubt, but a passage of belief. And even in the way Abram brings up the subject shows that he's reminding God of his own promises. Abraham didn't waver in unbelief. In fact, that's what the biblical text says. If you have your Bible, flip on over to Romans chapter 4. Let me read to you what the Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said regarding Abram. What shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, that means to be declared righteous in God's sight. It's a judicial, you have to think of it as courtroom language. Somebody who is justified is declared to be not guilty. For if Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteous apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. So how then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and 
his offspring, that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, then faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all of his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, Abraham believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, for or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made Abraham waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised who raised Jesus from the dead, our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Now, I want to point something out here. The Apostle Paul makes it clear in Romans chapter 4, verse 20, that Abraham did not waver in distrust. Abraham did not waver in unbelief. It says, no distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God and was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That's what the text said. In Romans chapter 4, verse 20, what Vince is saying here in this segment of his sermon is directly contradicted by Romans chapter 4, verse 20. Directly contradicted. What Vince is doing here is not faithfully handling the biblical text at all. He's been winging it and twisting it from the beginning. Maybe God's a liar. Maybe maybe everybody who laughed at me, they're right and I'm wrong. And so over and over, Abraham experienced doubts along the way. Let's um, let's look at one of those times. Um, Abraham has some doubts. And in in Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 through 3, it says this. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer, which is an awesome name, by the way, of Damascus. And Abram said, you have given me no children. So a servant in my household will be my heir. You see, this is several chapters later, right? years later, and Abraham is just kind of wrestling with what's happened? Because I did my end of the bargain, but it doesn't seem like... Mm, no, again, Romans 4.20 clearly contradicts his mishandling of this text from Genesis 15. You have, and, and the future is still not coming clear for me. I, I just don't get it. Abraham has faith, but he still doubts. Do you know what, know what I call that? Normal. But the text doesn't say that. 
That, it's a theological term. You can look it up. It's normal. Because here's the deal for you. You will experience the same thing. You, if you have faith, you also have doubts. You will have both. Uh, I want to share a couple quotes with you. There's a, an author. He's a real brilliant kind of guy. His name is Frederick Beekner. By the way, Frederick Beekner is not an apostle, and he's not a prophet. Just want to point that out. His writings are not found in the Bible. And um, check out what he says. He says, whether your faith is that there is a God or that there is not a God, if you don't have any doubts, you're either kidding yourself or asleep. And so he's... Doubts are not from God. Doubts come from the devil. He's saying it's normal to have doubts. If you believe there's no God, there's kind of be some times where you're like, maybe there... How could there be all this without God? And if your faith is that there is a God, there's going to be times where you're like, if there's a God, then why? You know, if I'm following God and I'm being obedient to him, then why is this happening? It's natural. But he goes on to say this. He says, doubts are the ants in the pants of faith. They keep you awake and moving. And so That's like saying that doubts are a, a positive thing. No, doubts act, doubt is the exact opposite of faith. It is the exact opposite. James chapter 1, verse 5, it says this, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, let him ask trusting God, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded, unstable in all of his ways. Yeah, the Bible doesn't um, speak positively of doubts. Doubt is the opposite of faith. It is the exact polar opposite. It, you think of matter and antimatter. They, when they get in, in, in proximity to each other, there's an explosion, and then both are destroyed. Doubt is, is the antimatter of faith, okay? So what he's saying is he's saying it's beyond natural to have doubts. It's good to have doubts. The Bible doesn't teach this. Doubts aren't like the moments where it's like those uh, throughout the whole Bible, those who doubt the word of God, who do not believe it, who have doubts about it. They're the ones who are always the ones who are condemned in the scriptures, never upheld as positive things. Oh, no, I'm doubting. What do I do now? Repent. Doubts are a good moment in your life. He's saying it because it kind of pushes you forward in your faith. There's another author, he's from like a long time ago, and he was like a writer, poet kind of guy, John Don. Any of you remember him from English class? Anyone ever go to school? Any educated people here? All right, John Don says this. He says, to come to a doubt is the voice of God in our conscience. Would you know the truth? Doubt, and then you will inquire. Here's what he's saying. When we have doubts, what a lot of people, a lot of Christians think is, oh, no, this is like, you know, like the devil. And he's whispering in my ear, trying to get me to to deny my faith and trying to lead me away from God. Yep, that's exactly correct. This guy, John Don, who was a believer in in God. Uh, By the way, uh, John Don, his writings do not appear in the Bible. Just want to point that out. He says, "Ah, what if, what if the doubts are whisperings in your head? your ear from God? What, what if it's God trying to get you to, to think more, to study harder, to, to continue your research so that you'll have a stronger, deeper, firmer foundation for your faith so that you will not be shaken you know, when, when life hits you? Doubts are not a bad thing. They're natural. They're normal. It depends on what you're doubting. 
If you're just if you're doubting a lie, that's a good thing. But if you're doubting the truth, if you're doubting Jesus, if you're doubting God, you're doubting the truth of Scripture. That's a bad thing, not a good thing. Hebrews eleven one. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the certainty of things not seen. For by faith the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And though his, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Faith is about certainty. It's about trust in God, not about doubt. This whole idea that embracing doubt is a good thing is, is one of the artifacts of postmodernity, and it's flat-out contradicted in Scripture. We're not called to be doubters. We're called to be trusters big difference normal look it up normal and they are a good thing that will help you to that's like saying that you know adulterous thoughts are a good thing because they're normal to, to grow all right if if you take those doubts and you're honest about them some people stuff them down that's not good if you're honest about your doubts and you take them to god and you say god i'm wrestling with this because here's what happens when you take your doubts and you're honest with God and you share them with him, he will, this, the last thing I, I learned from Abraham's story is that God will reaffirm his call and especially his promise. So remember, we just looked at Genesis 15, one through three. And Abram's like, God, what's the deal? I'm still childless. Like this person that's not even in my family is going to be my heir. This is ridiculous. You haven't, you haven't really given me what you said you were going to give me. Verse four through six says, then the same passage, then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside. God leads him outside and said, look up at the heavens and count the stars. If indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Look at verse six. Abram believed the Lord and he, that's God, credited it to him as righteousness. Yeah, this is the foundation of the imputed righteousness of Christ, the the doctrine of imputation which the Apostle Paul picks up on in Romans uh, chapter 4, which we just read, and in Philippians chapter 3. Righteous means to be right with God. If you're righteous, somebody who has righteousness, it means that God is approving of you. And so what happens here is that Abram gets really honest and he expresses his doubt to God. And what God does is he does not. No, he does not. Romans 4.20 makes it clear that he did not waver in unbelief or doubt. Not say, how dare you? I am God and you are doubting me. God does not say, seriously? Like, like, oh, after all I've done for you. Nope. What God says is, all right, I understand. Listen. Remember that promise I made you way back when? I know it hasn't happened yet. It's going to happen. You are going to have a child from your own body, from, from your marriage. And listen, let's go outside. You're not just going to have a child. You're going to have descendants like the stars in the sky. Don't give up. Do not give up on me yet. Stick with your faith. God reaffirms his call and reaffirms his promise. And it says, then it says, Abraham, Abram, believed and God credited it to him as righteousness. And and so it's like Abraham said, all right, God, I'm with you. And and it was like God got out of his throne in heaven and went, 
Yes. Like, are, are you guys looking at this? Look at this guy. This is what I'm looking for. Yes. Look at him. Look at him. He has not given up on his faith. He is keeping his faith. He has doubts, but he brought them to me, and I told him, I reaffirmed my... Man, I mean, Vince's telling of the story is not faithful to what the text says at all. Again, Romans 4.20 makes it clear that Abram did not doubt. Commitment to him, and he believes. That's what I'm looking for. And listen, that is what God's looking for from you. And God will do the same with you. When you have doubts and you start to wonder, like, what did I do? Like, why did I give my life to Jesus? Or, or why did I start volunteering? Or why am I telling my friends to come to church? And, and sometimes I don't even feel like going. Or whatever it is. Why am I giving money? Why, why did I break up with her? You know, whatever it is. Whatever it is that God calls you to do. When, when you start to have those doubts, if you bring them to God, he will reaffirm his promise to you. And he will, and he will call his promise to you to have an adventurous life you again and what he's looking for you in you is faith one of my one of my favorite authors is a guy named philip yancey and he he writes who is drifting into postmodern liberalism it's this he says doubt always always coexists with faith for in the presence of certainty who would need faith at all and then he says yeah that's ridiculous because that's what faith is it is certainty hebrews 11 describes, defines faith as certainty. Philip Yancey is just flat out contradicting the word of God because he's bought into post-modernity and Yancey is one of these guys who's become gay affirming. It makes perfect sense when you start buying into post-modern liberalist, liberal, uh, irrational philosophy. The Bible defines what faith is, and Hebrews 11 makes it clear that faith is being sure and certain of what we hope for. It says, I remain a Christian today due to my doubts. That's ridiculous. It's like saying, I remain moral because of my immorality. That's absurd. Faith and doubt are polar opposites the way morality and immorality are polar opposites. He's saying, Doubt is not a bad thing. It's normal. It's actually a good thing because it requires you to have faith and it pushes you on to ask more questions, do more research, and come to a firmer foundation for your faith. All right. Well, listen, there's lots more of Abraham's story to come. Like, in the coming weeks, it's going to get crazy. I'll warn you. I mean, there is, like, war uh, mercenaries, wife swapping, sex. Like, it's going to be quite a story. A little pe- Oh, give me a break. Wife swapping. That is a complete distortion of the story of Abraham and Sarah. PG-13 in here, but, but it's an adventure of a story. And, and Abraham, here's the conclusion, I guarantee you. You stick with us for the next three weeks. At the end of this series, you're going to come to this conclusion. Wow. Abraham lived an amazing life. That completely misses the point. He lived a life of faith, and so he had an adventure with God. He lived a a a life worth watching and worth us talking about for four weeks, like thousands of years later. See, that's the whole point. The whole reason why the story of Abraham is in there so that we can talk about, wow, what an adventurous life Abraham had. I hope I can have that too. That's the conclusion you'll come to. Here's the question you're going to have to wrestle with for the next few weeks. Do you want that?
No, I don't. You want that. I, I want my sins forgiven. You got anything along those lines? Do you- I want to be declared righteous the way Abraham was declared righteous by faith. You got anything about that? You want to live the adventure, the adventure of living a life of faith. I'm not interested in adventures. I'm in my mid-40s. I'm trying to basically make my life adventureless. You want to make the transition from being a life voyeur to being a life voyager. Yeah, this is not the gospel. This is a different gospel. Because now, maybe not when you came in, but now you know how it begins. And you know that it's available to you. It is as No, close it's not. The Bible doesn't make any such promises. As your beating heart. God's calling. The question is, will you answer the call? Let's pray. No, you don't get to pray for me. Wow. Man, what a train wreck. An absolute train wreck. I mean, a twisting of God's word, a mistelling of the story of Abraham, and completely missing the point. The story of Abraham points us to Christ. Did you hear anything about Jesus Christ in this sermon and the connection between Jesus and Abraham? No. The whole Abraham story is told as if it's it's somehow normative that you know the the the, a, the adventure that Abraham have you can have. No, that is not what the Bible promises. the The Bible promises that the offspring, the seed of Abraham, would bless the world, would bless all the nations, would be a blessing, and that offspring of Abraham is Jesus Christ. In fact, if you have your Bible, flip on over to the Book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 3, starting at verse 1. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. So let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. You see, everybody who has the same faith as Abraham, that trust and belief in the promises of God, that is, you know, uh, Jesus' righteousness is then credited to them as if it's their own. That's what Paul is pointing out to here. So all of us who have been brought to repentance and the forgiveness of our sins and faith and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, we are blessed with, along with Abraham the sa- with the same blessing. And in a very real way, we are then Abraham's offspring. We are grafted into Israel by faith. 3.10, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the law and continue to do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. 
But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. That in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. To give a human example, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to the one and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterwards, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by the promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So why then was the law given? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring, that's Jesus, should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put into place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. So is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Well, certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized in Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ, and if you are in if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to the promise. You see, the Bible has this rich theology and rich Christ-centered doctrine that focuses in on the offspring of Abraham, that's Jesus Christ, and announces to us in no uncertain terms that those of us who have been brought to repentance and faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, we are in Christ and we are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to the promise. There is a rich theology there in the Bible regarding Abraham, what's important about him, why it's important, and what it, and the impact and what it means regarding us. And none of it has to do with having an adventure. It has to do with being declared righteous by faith. Declared righteous by faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins and being declared righteous the same way Abraham was declared righteous by faith and having it credited or imputed to us as righteousness. The, 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 the biblical theology of Abraham is rich and it's Christ-centered. And what Vince Antonucci is preaching as a false gospel with promises that are not made in Scripture that completely miss Christ and him crucified for our sins and completely obscure the story of Abraham. What happened at the verve in the sermon that we preached is a spiritual crime. And Vince needs to repent and be forgiven of his false doctrine and his false promises and completely missing the point and trying to make the, the, the promises of God all about having an adventurous life. They're not. The Bible doesn't promise an adventurous life. It promises us suffering and persecution. He needs to repent. 
I need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. If you don't already partner with us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. And when you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith on a monthly basis. We truly do need your help, especially during the lean summer months. Of course, if you would like to make a one-time contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. So what would you think? I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me, you can. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.